0: Hello and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. My name is
1: Dan Taylor. My name is John Nickton. Join us twice a month at the International Schools Podcast as we have conversations with international school leaders, educators, and entrepreneurs working and engaging in the world of international schools and education.
0: And finally, just to say a huge thank you to our sponsor, Acer for Education, for making this podcast happen. Now onto the episode.
1: Welcome to the International Schools Podcast. Really good to be back. And Dan, so nice to see you. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing good, uh, John. Important to say you've actually had COVID very sadly and you you actually have COVID now, which you're making a Herculean effort to record, but look like you're feeling good. I'm
1: actually fine. I'm much better, uh, you know, triple vaccinated, all those good things. And it's just, yeah. But uh, I wouldn't want to miss this for the world.
0: Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Well, looking forward to the chat.
1: Yeah, so we have our guest, Andrew Hoover, who's the head of school at the American International School of Chennai. I've had the privilege of knowing Andrew for quite a few years. We actually worked together at the American School in Japan. Uh, We were both in the middle school. I was the tech integrator and Andrew was a social studies teacher. So over the years, we've shared uh, a lot of stories and I've always been so impressed uh, with Andrew's leadership and his, approach and disposition to leadership in schools. And he's finishing 11 years at the American International School of Chennai in India, which is in South uh, East India. And so we're really looking forward to talking about that. But I know Dan always does such a nice job of asking some travel questions. And just so over to you, Dan, more for the, uh, kind of lifestyle questions that i think yeah are
0: so you know I, I just enjoy living in different places so i'm always i, I I've, I've never lived in india you know I've, I've been to india not for a while and i'm very much looking forward to going back once quarantine's ended but but you were in in mumbai and then Chennai. is that right uh, andrew that's correct and and how was it so you've been there since 2005 like how, how was how was mumbai how was Chennai like and and, and how, how much has it changed since you've been there
2: Yeah, well, uh, you know, before I I talk about that, one of my favorite subjects, in fact, you know, if you've been someplace for 16, 17 years, it better be one of your favorite subjects, right? But I want to just extend my gratitude for the invitation to be here with both of you today. This is, uh, I'm a podcast uh, consumer uh, like few others. I walk a lot and I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to yours. I really appreciate everything you two bring. Uh, to the podcast universe and particularly to our areas of passion and professionalism. So I want to thank you both for that. And John, um, special shout out to you for being here, talking to me on a day that you have COVID. So uh, that's extraordinary. I'm really yeah, dreading, the,
1: martyr, I'm, but I'm I'm dreading
2: the, I'm dreading the variant that, that, you know, will go into our computers and travel, uh, <laughs> travel that, that way. That'll really, uh, that'll
1: I really think cripple we're us.
2: Yeah, so uh, Dan, great question. You know, uh, one, you know, I've been fortunate in being in India and rec- and being an administrator here and recruiting people for here because I am someone who, when I visited Bombay from Japan in uh, back in two thousand four, um, I w- fell in love with Bombay. And when I moved here, it took me three weeks to just feel completely at home and. John and I crossed paths in Japan, and I swear it took me three years to feel at home in Japan. So India is a place where I have this sort of, uh, what do you call it, an innate affinity. And, you know, sometimes you have it, and sometimes you don't. Yeah. Um, I won't fall into the trap that many people here try to get me to to do, which is, hey, Andrew, what, what city do you like more, Bombay or Chennai? Um, they're contrasting places, and that's one of the things that's amazing about living in India is just what a, a, region, which is, you know, the country is huge. It's a region of contrast. Um, and it's one of the things that I have found, uh, particularly stimulating about it. And, um, and it, and it's, it's one of the things I think that has kept me here because, you know, any place you're going to stay for a long time, uh, there's gotta be some, uh, fuel there to keep it new and to keep it interesting. And I just, I found this about Japan. I was in Japan for 11 years. Um, There was just always, it it constantly surprised you. And this culture has got deep roots and it's also highly dynamic. I mean, John's visited India fairly recently. He's come here to the school. You know, Chennai, this city cooks, you know, it's up early and things are happening and things are changing. And you've got that just amazing modern contrast with this amazing historical culture. Um, that's got stories and traditions um, and connections. So, you know, it's been one of those places, obviously, you know, at, at the most interesting level, Bombay is a super city and a mega city. And we moved there from Tokyo, probably the world's largest, most organized city to Bombay, which is organized wouldn't be the adjective you use to describe it. <laughs> fascinating place, um, just big and really kind of constantly at you and intense. And Chennai's a, Large Indian city, 10, 12 million, nestled along the coast of Southeast India. uh, Very suburban in its sprawl, uh, but very Indian culturally, Tamil. uh, Again, fascinating places. I have loved being here.
0: It's interesting. I think India, like for someone coming from the West, it's quite polarizing, I think. when I, I I went there, first of all, in 93. We're backpacking all around the world and spent like a month there. And there was four of us and two of us were just like fell in love with it. And then two just couldn't get out quick enough. You know, they just, it wasn't for them. Yeah. I think yeah, you've got to either yeah. embrace the, you know, the, how different it is or, or it just doesn't work for you, you know?
2: That's well, you know, my, um,
0: it,
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, it, it contrasted distinctly with, with Japan, which I think is one of the th- reasons that I liked it. I mean, whenever you're going to leave someplace, you want to li- go someplace that's different. Yeah, now, I, I don't get me wrong. I loved Japan, and I still do, but you know, when you're going somewhere <laughs> else, you want it, you want someplace that's a little different. And In India, culturally, this is a place that'll hug you. You know, yeah. so if you're up for if you're up for the hug, it's gonna hug you back. And you you've got to it, it's very open because of its long history of incorporating cultures, and incorporating people as they've come through this area it's very much of a welcoming culture. It's a place traveling here, Dan, as you know, it's fantastic. Everywhere you go, you feel like you can get into it uh, yeah. and you don't feel the straight arm. Um, and so being here for this many years has meant that, you know, myself, our kids both, uh, we have two kids. They, they went to ASB in Bombay and they've gone, they went here, great travel experiences that they had um, sure. and wonderful cultural experiences.
0: And, and obviously in, in, in the time you've been there, uh, I guess, 20 years or no, 15 years, I guess you've been India, like you've obviously yeah. seen a lot of educators and teachers come and go like, what, I mean, what advice would you think? I mean, there's probably some people listening to this thinking about working in India. Like, I mean, how, how have you seen most people really like it or, or any advice you'd give like any, any thoughts about people, you know, thinking of working in India as a, as a teacher?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, one of the pieces that I, so first of all, you know, when you recruit for here, you bump into, you know, the example, which is you gave, some people have been here and they've, they love it and they know they want to come back. And it's like, you know, recruiting into that cohort of international uh, educators is, is glorious, right? Because they, they get it, they've caught the Indian bug and they want to be here. Uh, you know, for folks who may, may not have thought about it, I think one of the things that I lead with which I think is actually kind of a helpful uh, filter if you're thinking about going into international, which is that India is a place that is not place neutral. India is a place that is going to remind you that you are in India every single day. And and when you internalize that just a little bit, you have to consider, you have to reflect on your own relationship to culture and cultural experiences. I think when i go a little further with that what does it mean it means that you, this is this is going to it's going to be there are going to be times where it's really tiring it's going to be times where you know you're going to have to become aware of your own cultural aspects of your own cultural kind of background and baggage and and spend time thinking about those when you're when the place that you go to is culturally neutral or very similar to where you've been you don't have to go into that space and so yeah. this space is you know reflective spaces if we learn nothing else from the pandemic reflective spaces are tiring and you know this place coming here you're gonna you're gonna have to spend some time uh being thinking about yourself as a cultural agent because this place is going to remind you that you know culture is culture is here and it's going to sit on your lap if you and you're going to have to manage it <laughs> That's fantastic
1: I think that's so important. uh, You know, even in the fact when you are recruiting, Andrew, I assume most heads, there are cultural nuances to any place you go. And I think even coming to Japan or when we lived in Tanzania, I know we had a lot of talks about what does it feel like coming to a country where often power and electricity are not available. There's the medical might not be to the standards that you expect. And, and I think right. it's so important that you internalize that as a candidate and understand what is your cultural compass and how might you deal with it. And if you've never done it, then you just need to be, I think, almost ready for some ups and downs and some of them quite challenging. I don't know what you guys think.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, look, at, at the end of the day, we're, you really have to, you're going to have to trade blinders. Because, you know, wherever you live, if you don't have blinders on, you're not going to you're not going to be happy day in and day out, no matter where, you know, now when I go back to the United States, you know, I got to put the media blinders or I'm going to get driven crazy on, you know. So, you, you, you know, you do have to have it. It's, it is we're talking about the same thing in a sense, like it's a level of self-awareness that, again, I've, I love being international because I, I like the personal work that it inspires me to do, that it makes me do um it's and sometimes that can be really challenging but recognizing where you live so i i tell people openly if they ask that one of my issues here is is ground pollution and if i let it get to me if i spend a lot of time thinking about it and looking at it and talking about it all the time i would have been i would have left india uh 14 years ago and you have those you have those they're not I don't want to belittle these by saying they're pet peeves. They're, they're truly, they're, they're issues that, that, that become personal for us. And then how do you manage them? And learning how to do that really is one of the aspects of, of, uh, people who, who have lived all over the world and who can talk about themselves, I think as being internationally minded and really understanding what that means at the, at the level of, you know, my feet are on the ground and I've, uh, I
0: love being international, definitely. And then, Andrew, my most important travel question as an Englishman is: Have, have you learned to appreciate cricket yet?
2: You know, um, <laughs> so first of all, i've I've attended i attended the India World Cup. The World Cup was yep. here, and Fantastic. you know, my daughter and I went. And uh, not, and I, and of course, when I went to see it live, I learned it right. That's yep. what, I didn't really understand uh, football. The, w- what the world calls football until I went to matches in Japan and then I was oh. like, okay, I can appreciate <laughs> this Cricket was the same way so now when I I can flip it on and watch like most sports I don't have a great appreciation for them on television so yep. it's one of those things but um, of course I love reading about sports and cricket's one of those sports that I now have religion in India basically. Yeah. yeah yeah go ahead
0: cool. No, I was saying it's like religion, completely off, off topic. But um, I read recently that the IPL, which is the Indian Premier League Cricket League, is the second highest paying sports league in the world out of any sport, any country. The NBA is number one and the IPL is number two. So it's, wow. it's a big business. Even it's ahead, more of, it's ahead of Major League Baseball. It's ahead, of, it's ahead of a premiership in England. Wow, It's ahead of um, all the US sports, ahead of the NFL. You know, it's, it's huge.
1: Okay. Yeah. Anyway, John, back to you. We,
0: we love
2: our cricket here.
1: Uh, and uh, and it is you know as we're talking about transitions you know we lived in tanzania and china and japan our most difficult transition was moving to the czech republic coming back to europe after being away for 16 17 years which we did not anticipate we came in thinking oh it's europe i'm originally from switzerland had lived in europe educated in europe were, but it was interesting. So I think, as you said, Andrew, you can never really anticipate what might hand, and what kind of blinders you have. So I, I thought that is so important the way you both shared that out. John, yeah. did you find
0: that when you came back to Europe, it was a bit like you missed the sort of um, how eclectic and how interesting everything was? I know a lot of people moved back to Europe from Asia and they really want to go straight back to Asia.
1: It was so quiet. Yeah. You know, being in Tokyo and Beijing and in Dar es Salaam, even Dar es Salaam, that's not a cause. There's this, you know, activity, like Andrew says, once the morning starts and actually in Tokyo, there is no morning or night. It's just constant. And Beijing is a bit like that. And Prague has its, you know, activities, but it just did not feel as vibrant initially because I was looking through a different lens and it has a lot of vibrancy. Don't get me wrong. Uh, But I think that that was uh, just a transition. Talking about transitions, Andrew, you have you're at the kind of at the swan song. You're ending your tenure 11 years at the school as head of school. And uh, I know you were also a middle school principal in Mumbai and have been very active in leadership in international schools, also with different organizations. And one of the things that, you know, I think is always interesting when we have guests that are finishing, not finishing, but transitioning to a new phase of their career, not retiring, but looking at new opportunities, kind of what are some of the things that you're walking away with today that maybe you weren't walking away when you first started? What are some of the things that you now have in your toolkit that maybe you see as opportunities to use in this new context that you're going to explore?
2: Wow. There's a lot. There's a lot there in that question. I could unpack, John. I, you know,
1: <laughs> I know you quite well, Andrew. So we're happy to do a five-hour podcast. <laughs> John's good
0: at his. John's good at his questions, which encompass a lot. I, I like them. You know, it gives a,
1: yeah. it gives you a lot of freedom
0: yeah. to choose which part to ask as well. Though.
2: Yeah, and especially at this time, where you know we're coming through these. You know, we're now month 23 uh, managing uh, ourselves um, and our schools. Uh, our peers, our colleagues through, uh, you know, these, ex- the extraordinary, uh, phases of the, of the pandemic, which, you know, also have, you know, just opened up amazing avenues for, uh, individual and community, um, sort of, uh, reflection and recognition and realization, uh, aside, you know, uh, you know, John, I, I think, I think one of the things I, you know, I was, a, I was, I've been a teacher for about as long as I've been in a formal leadership role. So I, I'm a, I'm a little bit of an unusual head of school. Um, I turned 60 this year. Um, I taught for 16 years. I was, you know, full-time teacher. I didn't go, I, I didn't, in many respects, I, I sort of became an accidental uh, accidentally fell into formal leadership roles, but not so accidentally too, because I think as a teacher, I was really drawn to uh, kind of uh, work that was beyond my specific domain, if you'll pardon that limited notion uh, of the classroom. So I got really interested in kind of broader school change, and and just interested in that work, in the work that I got to do with colleagues, you know, as a team member or team leader, and. The change work that one does in a division, and even at the school level, so I got I got kind of drawn into that. I think I think one of the reasons I got drawn into that is because I have a streak that maybe many educators have, which is that streak of idealism. You know that you're you know we're drawn to what we we're drawn to this profession and to schools because um, the the possibility of being a part of something that's going to make a difference for the future that's going to be Different tomorrow is so powerful, right? So I'm am also uh, so so when I moved into formal leadership role, I think I brought that kind of idealism with me. So if you know to your question, without going into all the layers of it, I think you know I'm coming through 16 years in India and ASB and, and Bombay, really, um, really having recommitted and experienced. In so many amazing ways, what it means to be an uh, um, an idealistic educator at, at a leadership level, and I think it it has come through for me and the work that I've been able to do in these these two mission really mission driven schools. And what does it mean? I, I take I uh, John, you know this. I take missions uh, really seriously, not not seriously in the in a pedantic sense, but seriously in terms of like you know, those are, those should be our true north. And when they are, that's going to uh, open up lots of conversation, lots of constructive um, dialogue and some conflict. Um, and I find that space to be exactly where we want to be as schools. I am no less hopeful. I'm no less optimistic than I was, you know, when I was 26 and I took my first uh, teaching job. The, I, I, I've been accused of lacking patience sometimes, and I think some of my impatience is exactly the thing that somebody in my role needs. Um, And that that said, I'm still I'm still waiting out uh, the 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 inevitable and gradual transformation of our of our schools and the way that we think about how we prepare uh, kids for. Uh, strange and complicated and uncertain futures.
1: And that's interesting. The idealism is, you know, that's something that I think a lot of great leaders really there, that's compass that you refer to that kind of North that you work with that really drives you day to day out. But the challenge very likely is when you are a school leader, you have maybe a hundred, 200, or even somebody like Dan that has an organization and has, they have their mission How do you make sure everybody is as idealistic? Or maybe they don't need to be idealistic, but you need them to kind of buy into the thing. And, you know, I always, I have this wonderful relationship with a a friend of mine who works at Apple. And every year when I go to Santa Cruz to visit my uh, wife's family, we have this lunch that we've had for years. And I get to spend time at Apple. And the one thing that I always, when I walk out, is like, everybody's drinking the Kool-Aid. You know, yeah. there is just this overt, common belief in what they're doing. And it's not obnoxious or postered around the room. But when you interact with people, they're, they're all focused on the same thing. And I'm wondering, as you as a leader, how have you kind of gotten your teams to believe in this idealism, or maybe not believe in it, but coalesce around it so there is this a unified move?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, you know, starts with, starts with oneself, right? What is, you know, I, have, what's my relationship uh, to those big ideas? You know, where am I? Uh, and then, you know, what am I going to do about it? Um, and, you know, look, you can have a, you know, the, the thing, mission statements need to be, need to, need to be um, frameworks for action right? They should invite us to be doing things. Um, and I think leaders that don't do uh, into their mission, that don't act into their mission, you know, I'd love to have that conversation with leaders who don't think that that's a necessary thing about what we do. From my point of view, it's very necessary. So gotta, you're going to start with yourself. Um, the other thing is, you know, I, I do think our international schools, some I, I think... Uh, it, the, the missions have certain resonance when you look across, particularly schools that are uh, I would say oriented in a progressive uh, way, uh, have progressive ideas and ideals and progressive values. There is a certain commonality to the things that we want um, the things that we want to do, uh, the things that we th- the way we think about school. but I honestly do think every mission is different, and I don't think they're all uh, they're not all created equal and I don't think they're all of equal. Uh, substance, and I think that you know the substance is in the invitation that missions give to community members to have constructive conversations. If you've got a mission statement that's so, and I don't have one off the top of my head, but that's so simple or so so utterly clear that uh, no one that that there's nothing to really talk about or disagree about, I'm wondering what are you doing? You know, <laughs> if you think about True North true north is a large swath of territory. So when I think about my, our mission and you put it out there and say, that's our true north. Well, there's a lot of room for everybody. And I think good missions um, make people invite people in to conversations about fundamentally, what do they mean? What does this word mean? What does it look like when we do this? What's it going to feel like? What's my role in this? Uh, our missions, all talk about students, but Behi- right behind that are the implications for the for the adults and the community members as um, as as people who are going to you know the, the students are all kids are always watching and they're always listening and it's like what relationship does do these set of ideas have to me so i think gr- you know great missions invite the conversation and they also invite conflict good core beliefs and core values should invite constructive conflict and we should be able to have uh, discussions where we disagree about how to do things while we all recognize, all right, this is the direction that we're going. I think when you, when you, like, it worries me a little bit when I get the sense that people buy into the mission too easily, like that, that as, as much as I'm, as much as I'm um, sort of not pleasantly uh, surprised by people who just, who come here and, and don't want to have anything to do with the mission. It's like, we wear it on our sleeves what why wouldn't you want to at least participate in the figuring out of it
0: i'm interested uh, uh, sorry Amanda. yeah i'm interested about like how how does it work let's say obviously you know, you take over the role as a school director or principal or head depending on, on the on the school and obviously typically you're inheriting someone else's mission and someone else's mission statement and do you think I mean, do you think you generally want to change that and adapt it for you and, and put your stamp on it a, as a leader, or would you only take a job at a school where you already agreed with the school's mission? Like, what's how does that work? If you put yourself in the shoes of someone becoming a a leader, sure. like, what should they do?
2: Less- yeah, I mean, I think you you know if if you've it, it depends. I think it depends on sort of where what a what a school's or organization's relationship is with its mission. Dan, right? I mean, because that's going to tell you something about the culture of the school. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, yeah, I think going going into a place with a mission with a mission, if it doesn't resonate, somebody like me who's idealistic, I'm not going to be drawn in, you know, yeah. unless unless the charge is, hey, Andrew, can you come in and flip this, turn this thing around? Um, and and I didn't have that. I haven't had that experience where that was the sort of the. That was the, um, the 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 course that we were taking, um, but I think you know I, I'll, I'll revert, first of all I'll, I'll revert back to what I was saying, Dan. I think I think mi- missions should not should not be ex- uh, an exclusive set of ideas. I think if it's too tight, if it's too, um, if, it's up, if, it's too certain, um, if it's if it's too certain, if it's if it's too, not, Im- not ambiguous enough, I think you're going to struggle to have people, um, kind of get inside it and, and be a participant. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, you know, and, and, all, and I also think, you know, you, we have to be careful about, um, you know, here we've had this mission. I, I, I was, I was, ch- we didn't have a mission and we didn't have a plan. So when I came here, it was what part of the work of the first two years. So I definitely got to live it. But, you know, I wrote the mission, our community wrote the mission, there were 30 people in the room, and all 30 people had to agree with it. And part of what you have to acknowledge about leadership is, um, I think, healthy and good leadership is, leadership is not about getting what you want. Um, And I wouldn't say that this is my mission. In fact, I, uh, you know, between the three of us, uh, that's my sense of humor. um, I really wanted the notion of pursuit of happiness in our mission. And I kind of went out on a limb in those meetings where we were really hashing it out. And the, the, the community group just shot me down. And it's like, okay, I'm moving on. I never got since, since then, or probably even before that, you know, I've been a bit of a student of happiness. I think happiness is a really important topic for schools to be understanding and learning about what does it mean? Um, yeah, But nonetheless, you don't see it in our mission. And so, from a leadership point of view, you know, one lesson that you you learn early on in a formal role is it's not about actually in leadership. You're doing you're if you're not compromising, you're not you're probably not leading well.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. This idea.
0: Yeah, one other thing, Andrew, you mentioned earlier, which I find is really interesting, is like, you know, you should you should question a mission. It shouldn't be something that you just have to accept and honestly i think a lot of schools get that wrong you know i work with a lot of schools like for example i work with some christian schools and their mission is you know christ follows this and you know i'm a christian so for me i i, I you know i agree with this mission but does every child automatically always you know they, they, i don't think i think the mission should be you know the children should be told you know this is something you know you, you've got to question this as well like i think you mentioned it's not always just you have to um accept every aspect of this as, as the as the truth laid down from above you know
2: yeah. I mean, you know, it's it, in a sense, it, it is a it is a promise. Um, and it's it's so it's not if it's not a reality. And if it's true north, it's it's somewhat it should be somewhat abstract. Yeah. Um, and so th- there should be lots of room for really good uh, uh, conversation. So, you know, to that, Dan, I often refer to our mission as the primary container for conflict, constructive conflict it's yeah. also uh, the primary container for alignment it's yeah. also my my the first the first document that i'm gonna make sure that i've got in my head when i'm making a big decision sure. um it's it's not a simplistic thing and yeah, and again course. i like the true north as a notion as a conceptual notion for the the mission because that that is a that's a lot of geography You know, in in the notion of a true north, if I'm standing here in southern India and I point myself true north, there's a lot of territory there for the community to to engage with. Yeah.
1: And what's important that you keep bringing back, Andrew, is this idea of there needs to be a, a, a good discourse and there needs to be conflict, but constructive conflict. And I think that's something that especially in this day and age with polarization and we don't even need to go down that road. We all see it on our feeds and whatever. But I'm wondering, as a school leader, that how do you grapple with this tension of wanting people to be engaged in some type of discourse, call it a conflict discourse? but at the same time, make sure it's with empathy, there's some humility and it's constructive because often in schools, you know, you have quite a wide spectrum of buy-ins and people get tired or they get cynical, et cetera, et cetera. How do you kind of, as a school leader, ensure there is kind of a bottom line that everybody plays by?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, That that's that's a that's a great question, John, and and um, you know I'm I think that um, the, the question itself is an important one to keep on the table. You know how? Let me frame it a different way. How do we how do we talk together, and how do we work together? And we know the quality of conversations and the ways that we have those conversations are going to be a direct reflection on the quality of work that gets done and the quality of the organization that we all quality of the community. And when I say quality, again, I don't mean that, uh, I don't think quality is everyone, you know, sitting around in circles singing the same song um, and doing everything the same way all the time. It's, but it, it is about fundamentally, let, let's go to some basics. Uh, you know, I think of, I'm a big Democrat with a small D. I believe in democratic processes. I believe in self-determination and equity. And so when you think of that and you apply it, and I think that fits with a progressive school model, what do we believe in? We believe in respecting each other. You know, we believe that, um, we believe in each person's uh, value as a human being. We acknowledge that each one of us has to determine for ourselves the kind of, you know, life of integrity that we're going to lead. We, we see diversity and we embrace diversity because we know that diversity in all forms, including ways of seeing the world and ways of talking about or thinking about the mission is going to make us stronger. It doesn't mean that it's always, it, it doesn't always feel great necessarily in the now. Um, but I think, uh, you know, th- this is the way, th- I think these, this is the way that healthy families healthy communities, healthy organizations function, right? Conflict is endemic to our work together, as is consensus, as is um, uh, appreciation and gratitude and love. Uh, So I think those things need to go together. Um, You know, when you have that, when you have the problem where, you know, the the core values don't make sense to someone, I think, you know, that's where, you know, that's where you have to have hard conversations and that's where, you know, leaders become um, you know, really important to the community. Uh, and how do you handle that?
1: Do you find in your tenure, you've had to always come back to those conversations because you have transitions, you have teachers that leave new administrators come in. So there's kind of a, a turnstile. So is this a, as a leader, would you say you never need to underestimate how many times you need to remind people of that?
2: yeah you know i mean i i think even in in highly stable organizations um you know and we we've got we've gotten a lot better at, at retaining uh faculty but you know we are we're an international school an international student body international faculty and you're absolutely right there's a lot of you know what we think of as churn and so yes how do you uh in a sense reproduce the culture um and do that um and do that with energy and newness and i think one you know the great thing about uh communities that do shift and do uh new people come in is they bring those perspectives um i think you know you you do and you ha- you um y- you know what i think of as e- you know even in um organizations or in my family where i i don't have a lot of turnover in my family but the you know the echo is really important. You know what, what? are the things that kind of get echoed, and they get echoed uh, so you hear them differently in time, but also they reverberate through time into the future. And you've got to be you got to you got to find space for those. So I'll, I'm going to give you an example that has that has been really helpful to us. So a long ago we became uh, an adaptive school school. So we, we brought in the adaptive schools collaboration model and we are still just super committed to that. And that, you know, so that's one of those professional kind of learning events that wasn't eventful. Instead, it has become part of the DNA of the school. And what that has empowered us to do is have, you know, have hard conversations. It's, helped us understand how to be collaborators and collaborators aren't necessarily agreeers. Collaborators are people who kind of go into teamwork situations and mix it up and really work through stuff to, to do the best work that we can. Um, I think that's filtered down to kids as well. How do we work together? I mean, if you think about what democracies are, it's so central. So, you know, I actually, you know, take an example, I look at the adaptive schools work that we do, and I link it directly to the mission, even though it's very much on the ground. And actually, I link it to my broader passion for creating democratic institutions. Um, so I, I, I think that that answers your question. But I think you're generally you've got to, you got to keep your eyes, you got to keep your eyes on the ball. Um, and I think you do have to look at every, you know, every time you change a group, Every time you every time a new person comes in or a person leaves, you've changed the group and you've changed the culture. So you you have to acknowledge that. And so you've got to become you got to become a good storyteller and you've got to become uh, really be clear about what our commitments are that are going to that we're going to get the most from as you know, we continue on this, you know, journey toward what we would our mission, some something up there that's true north.
1: And what's interesting as you describe that kind of reiteration that occurs and with people coming in and out and always making sure and you use the adaptive schools what i think so often and you alluded to this kids listen and watch and see what's going in the school building much more than often we realize and often staff will you know share something in the corridor or in an open coffee room and it trickles out and i think we underestimate how quickly kids pick up on that and on the culture. And I think yeah. if they see that, that you're describing this reiteration, good conflict, collaboration doesn't mean we all agree, but we're coming to consensus. I think that has a huge impact on them as they, that echo chamber that you use so nicely is that, you know what echo chambers are we're creating when those kids are in the corridor and they start seeing us or hear about a meeting. And many of the kids like our children, uh, you know, they sat at the table and they heard us talk about school and uh, neither of my kids are going into school. There you go. <laughs> you know, uh, so I think, you know, that's so important. Andrew, as I'm listening to you and the, your dedication and your passion, and I know the work that you've put in to the schools that you've worked in. Of course, you're constantly being pulled at by a million different people. You have a board you have your directors, you've got your teachers, you've got the parents, and you've got the cultural context, maybe be local officials or whatever. And, you know, we're all human. And what have you found in your 11 years is kind of just your well-being and just managing this Ooh. constant being on. And if you're passionate, you give everything. How do you recharge? What are some things maybe that you would want to share and reflection with other leaders or even teachers or people that are very busy, kind of what what have you learned in this journey? What is the story that might have changed with well-being?
2: Well, you know, that's a great question. And I'm, you know, there are there are a lot of um you know a lot of my colleagues here at this school here now and who have been here who um uh, who would do a much better job of answering that question than I would? Um, you know as as your as your preamble to the question kind of indicates, um, you know I think my challenge personally has been you know really finding finding balance with um, the time demands of the job and the time demands of being a parent and being a you know a spouse. Um, and then the time demands that you really do need to give to yourself. Right. And I'd say, you know, generally my challenge has been, I, I, I haven't given an, I haven't, I've struggled, I've been challenged to give to myself in the ways that I think really, uh, we need to be, we, we need to be conveying. So as the, as the kids have listened and watched, me, I'd say that's one area where I would have liked to have said to them, yet yeah, don't, uh, don't do this part, you know, <laughs> um, you know, one of the most important conversations that we started having as part of our planning process, that's linked to our mission has been about well-being, And that's, uh, that the, the, the those conversations were became really important to us when the pandemic hit, like they were, mm-hmm. they were really important to us before, but you know, one thing that the pandemic has uh, done, in my view, is it's it's put us all uh, sort of in that vulnerable space that really kids are at all the time. You know, kids don't know the future, they're they're still trying to, their brains are not hardwired to kind of suss out certainty and pathways and that kind of thing. And we've been living that way and we talk about these missions and all of a sudden this pandemic has put us all on the ledge, right? All of a sudden it's um so you know, in any case, you know, we have we have this well-being framework that's been incredibly helpful to us for to have conversations and to get good work done. Um, and one pillar of it is self-awareness. Um and you know, and I I I think if I've learned anything over the last few years, um in the pandemic, it is that you know, becoming much more self-aware to the, you know, the stories in my head about where we are, where we've been and where we're going. And then what, how does that relate to me? Um, so I think if I could answer the question, I'm, it's almost the answer. You really do have to think of yourself as a stakeholder. And that's been a challenge for me. And through the pandemic, I've actually learned how to, think of myself that way and, and practice that more intentionally. But the notion that you are a stakeholder of your own life that, yeah, you have to judge. Jo- yep. I'm accountable to lots of people. I'm also accountable to myself. Wow. You know, I mean, it's like, I wish that I had thought of that when I was 12, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. it's not, it, 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 not a lot of wisdom there, but, you know it took a pandemic for me to really recognize um and to take that seriously
1: yeah i think all of us i think for some reason you know well-being was and we've had guests here talk about well-being we've all understood it but somehow the pandemic really brought it out and i think you know for many leaders and that's something that you know i'm curious to hear from you, Andrew, you know, for many school leaders around the world, it's gotten more and more complicated. You know, if you're a school leader, you're not just doing education, you're doing uh, personality conflicts, you're doing political conflicts, you're doing environmental conflicts. There's so many things that come to your table and very likely you can go and get a doctorate and a master's in that field. But the complexity, the nuances and the constant uncertainty and constant demands What are you, what would you say to aspiring leaders? You know, the people that are maybe starting to become an assistant principal and they want to, you know, become a school head. What are some cautions or what are some things that you think looking back, because it's really changed since when I think of my my own school the headmaster, headmistress, had a very parochial kind of limited role and there wasn't much on the table. I'm not undermining or dis- saying that their job wasn't important, but I think the world has become so much more polarized. There's so many more complexities. Uh, what do you think are some guideposts that you would say, okay, you're interested in going into leadership. Let me warn you or let me make sure you understand this. Just
2: John, I just... You're, you, you, you lobbed these onions at me. Um, I just want to grab them and peel them back. Um, You know, I, I think, so, you know, a couple things first, you know, with leadership, you know, I've alluded to this. I think, you know, when you're a leader, I think you've got to become a student of yourself and of leadership. Don't underestimate when you, you know, sometimes as educators, we think, Oh well, I'm really good at curriculum instruction or i really i you know I like being with adults yeah and you're gonna there's there's an entire field of literature and thinking and processing out there called and it's about leadership it's complicated and so you you gotta so my a piece of advice there would be you know get serious about being a student of yourself and about the area of leadership but you know someone aspiring to do that i think. Um, you know, I've got a 25 year old, John, like you, our kids are very similar in age and a 20, 23 year old, you know, my conversation, what do you, what do you care about? What are you passionate about? And so, you know, in education, if, if you're, if if you want to go into leadership, it, it better be something that you care about. There needs to be something there that you care about and that you're passionate about. And And if you are, if you've got those, if those fires are burning, then go and just, um, you know, remember to, you're going to have to know yourself differently than you probably have in the past. And there is, there is this complexity of roles that, you know, leadership fundamentally is a small L process, um. You know, you you certainly in flat organizations like schools, you don't lead with the title. You know, you've got you you got a lot. There's a lot to do. Um, you know, so I, I, I think I'd be there. Um, you know, John, you know that, you know, I I talk to, I think, middle level leadership in schools like team leadership. Some of the hardest leadership work there is in the world. You know, it's not necessarily the most risky, but team leader roles in schools are really, really hard. You know, there's, you got to have clarity of vision. You got to build consensus. Um, sometimes, the, the you know, we, we we have these things in schools called teams, right? Well, like, do, have we, d- does every team in a school have a purpose? Because if you don't have a purpose, you're really not a team. So you're, oh, I'm, a, I'm on a team, but we don't have a purpose. What's our purpose? Well, to meet every week. Well, that's no purpose, right? So sometimes, you know, there's a, there's a lot of back work that has to get done there. And, and when you're a teacher and you're a teacher leader, um, we, we know how much energy, you know, the the giving to students and how much attention you are, how many decisions you are making on a daily basis. It's exhausting. There's a lot of energy out. So, you know, if, if whatever you're if whatever you're doing in a leadership role is not bringing energy back in. And that's why I think if you're passionate about it and you believe it, you gravitate to that. Follow the energy. Uh, if we've learned another thing in the pandemic. It's follow the energy and and go ahead and do it. Um,
1: and that's then, so you know, that's there's so, so much to learn. Yeah, and you're so right about the energy because I think often where people feel depleted because of just the situation, is where can you get that energy? Who are the people that would kind of reinvigorate you and really want you to get going? You know, there's, I've heard the quote that a leader is somebody that jumps and takes the grenade. (laughs) And I'm wondering what you say to that.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. The leader's the one that, well, I'd say that, um, you know, somebody that jumps on a grenade for the group, um, that's uh, uh, an incredibly courageous thing to do. And I would have to say, depending upon the circumstances, that would be an act of leadership. Um, I think, um, you know, so sometimes if, I'm, if I can extend the metaphor, I think sometimes as leaders, we are the only ones to do something. There might be nobody else to do something that is utterly essential. And we are part of our role. We are protectors. You know, we're protectors of the, the people who are here now. And we're also the protectors of our future community. You know, we we like our boards of directors who are very much boor- great boards think of themselves as the boards for the future. Right? We want to be here tomorrow for those kids that we don't even know yet. And I think heads also have to be in that space. So, you know, when if the if the grenade is there and, and that's what you have to do to to protect uh, the here and now and. The future, then, that's what you do, uh, and that's a courageous
1: act of leadership. Um... Thank you. That's that's really it's a helpful. Question, John. It's a you, question. I like it. Yeah. You <laughs> often, you know, you often hear that, and, and more in the context. If you look at some of the pundits, like the Simon Senex and old Drew Dudley's, they, you know, they talk about the Marines. That you know, that kind of where I, I will do anything to save my platoon. And there's a watered down version with leaders that you see some leaders that, you know, I remember having a leader every morning, they were at school at six o'clock, and they were the last one to leave. He was actually a leader with you and me. And during the day, he was with kids, but in the morning, he came early, and he stayed late, because he knew that kind of work could not go during the day, because the day was focused on the teachers and the students. And that has never, never gotten out of my head. I was, I am to this day... uh, so grateful to have witnessed that, and I think you have too. We both had the uh, privilege of being with that leader, but I'm just, you know, so it's often interesting. Another thing, and we have a guest, Dr. Helen Kelly, who's coming back. Uh, where Dan and I had the pleasure of uh, talking to her. She's done a lot of research about wellness and leaders and teachers, and she's about to write a book about well-being amongst uh, school leaders, and we're gonna have her back at the end of next month. Are you, from your cohort, as you talk to other leaders in your region and you're interacting with different organizations, and I know there's a headnet uh, email group, are school leaders getting tired? Is this last three years really taking a toll? And are you seeing leaders saying, you know what? I'm done.
2: Um, yes. I mean, I you know, I don't know I don't see how anyone's kind of coming through this and not, you know, not feeling, um, you know, not, not feeling the, the, um, the fatigue, um, the cumulative, um, stress, the uncertainty, um, the waves of it, um, you know, the burdens, uh, that that brings along with it. I, um, So whether you're a school leader or, you know, others, I'm, I think, I think we've all, we're all going through this and this is part of, you know, the great reassessment um, that, that I think has been going on across many, many fields Um, leadership, you know, schools, you know, we're community organizations and these have been communities have been really hard hit by this. So it's changed the job made it very hard, made it, there's a, there's been a lot of stress. Um, so I think there is a, there's, there's a lot of, uh, tension in our, in the system. Um, you know, and that said, it's also, you know, I'm going to look back on this and say, um, you know, what it was an amazing, it's been an amazing experience and I'm not talking about in the past tense, it's not going away. Um, but certainly, you know, I feel like, it has, for me, it has re, you know, and I'm basically an optimistic person. I, I, th- I thrive on taking a lot of responsibility and trying to be, do my job well. But this is, this experience has, has really forced in me to do diff, a, a much different kind of um, personal work on a continuous basis and how I've had to rethink in our, or, you know, what does it mean, you know, for us to take some responsibility and what does optimism mean? You know, there've been times where I've just felt like, uh, you know, like, am I, I'm trying to be optimistic. Am I being real and genuine and how, what does it mean for me to be the optimistic person that I am in this context when I don't, I don't have any clearer view on the crystal ball than anyone else. Um, you know, and then where in a time that requires strength, what is, does what the new humility look like? Um, so, you know, again, it's, uh, the situation has, it, it's exhausting because it's, it's put, it's made our missions and what we do very, very real. There is no, this is not a simulation. <laughs> and when you have that experience, you know, I can jump on a grenade in my computer game, or I can jump on a grenade. And when you have the experience in reality um, and you allow yourself that, there's just going to be a tremendous amount of growth. Um, and so I think that's what, I think, I hope that's what's happening for, for lots of us. Uh, that, that it carries, there's a tremendous amount of risk and vulnerability there. I don't mean to downplay that. Uh, I I I know that from experience. I I'm living uh, with a lot of risk and vulnerability in my role and in the work that I'm doing. Um, and you know, okay, that that is what it is. But the learning that that this has given to us is truly it's. I think at some point we'll 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 have enough distance and look back on it and say, what an amazing gift of experience this has been.
1: And I love that, uh, the idea of looking back later and realizing what a gift it is, because sometimes now it doesn't feel like a gift. But I really like the way you're making us remind ourselves that usually in hindsight, then those positives really stick out and the learnings that we've engaged with and this vulnerability, I think, is so important. You know, you and I'm sure, you know, Dan can talk to this too. You hear about the great <clears throat> resignation, you know, people basically yeah. saying, I'm done. And I think very likely, collectively, we've never had to really self-reflect and think of ourselves, as you say so nicely, Andrew, being a stakeholder of ourselves. And maybe the one silver lining of COVID is finally we've really been able to dig deep and really reflect on what are we doing? Does this really matter? Do I really want to be doing this? Uh, and and you know those vulnerabilities maybe provide us with a better framework to move forward. So Definitely. absolutely. Well, I don't know, Dan. Any thoughts or regarding? No, this I, idea? I really
0: agree with everything you said. I mean, it's it's just been um, yeah, like you say. I mean, I think we're going to look back on this and say there's been some really useful things. How we we have grown in some ways. It doesn't always seem like that. Um, I think on a, on a concrete level, I mean, the COVID for me, there has been a few things like that have really come positive. Like, for example, now I, I've completely given up watching the news. Like I realized that it was absolutely destroying my mental health. And, and my life could go on as normal. I don't need to know the COVID statistics. It doesn't, it doesn't affect me directly. And and, and it lives a die of face. So there's a few things, like I think concrete things, you know, in terms of, what you can grow from this. Like I don't watch the news anymore at all. You know, I don't even check the BBC website. I, I get it from different sources and, and my life is absolutely better for it. You know, it's interesting.
1: And yeah, I think, you yeah. know, if you just look at uh, Facebook in the stock market, you know, more and more people are saying goodbye to social media because yeah, I, I'm on you
0: know, Facebook, Facebook as well. I'm not even on Facebook yeah. anymore.
1: Adam Grant, the podcaster, has a great thing, and he says, you know, once you're on Instagram or any of these social foods, you suddenly realize what's the point? What what yeah. what is the value added? What have I gotten out of this? Absolutely yeah. nothing. I'm actually more miserable.
0: That's exactly Andrew. right. I was actually feeling more miserable on Facebook by the time I left. So, like, what, what's the point?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't yeah. So, so you if know, you're holding stock in those things. Go somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know. I think I'm
2: I'm struck by. I think the the pandemic has has really shown, uh, you know, spotlighted what I think of. You know, there before this virus got a hold of the world, you know, I think there were um, debilitating behavioral viruses out there. You know, self pity, nostalgia, certainty, and this pen this virus has really forced us to react into those behavioral viruses. Like, boy, you're, if you're someone to, if you're prone to self pity through this, it is going to be a grim, it's been a grim time. (laughs) And the, and the thing to, how do you deal with that? You own it. What, what's in my control? Start to own the things in your universe and, and take responsibility. It's been such a great reminder. And that's where, you know, oh, we're, we spend so much time looking forward to getting back our old lives well not going to happen we're never going to go back and so that's the source of optimism that we need to embrace optimism is not just pie in the skyism it's 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 a notion that we can look ahead and start to see new forms right sure. and certainty is such a menace you know um john you remember uh, you know, I kept a sign in my classroom for years, which is certainty is the enemy of learning. And kids love that. Right. It's like, aren't we supposed to become sure about stuff? And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, actually scientists are never sure. And it's like <clears throat> this is such a reminder to like get get humble. Right. Yeah. We don't know a lot. And it's OK. Um, and so, yeah. And turning off, turning off the, the noise that's out there that's just um, basically uh, sort of, you know, scratching at all these behavioral impulses that we have is, I think it's been, a, it's been, a, it's been crucial for a lot of people. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, it, it, I think it was in The Economist, they say, welcome to predictable unpredictability. And yeah. I think, you know, I, that really stays there. Andrew, thank you. And I know you are closing a chapter and opening a new chapter, and uh, I assume that uh, you're looking forward to something different. Uh, is, is, this, is this something that you feel that going into a different uh, road is where you were at at the end of your tenure here?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, the um, look, this is uh, the, first of all, I'm. I am optimistic about uh, you know the next generation of leaders that are coming up in international schools. I'm seeing so much uh, so much promise and energy, um, and that thrills me. Um, you know, I think, yeah, the intensity for me, just wanting to be like, you know, I I need to try something different. You know, it's like if 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 I don't. I'm not gonna actually. I, I couldn't do uh, another head of school job right now because I don't have enough perspective on what has happened to me. Like, I, I, actually, I know that if I were gonna do a head of school job again, which I could do, I may do, um, I am going to need more perspective. And so I've got to find a way to take that perspective. So I am going to change gears. I'm going to go back to the States. John, you know, it's like, I know the biggest cultural shocks of my life are in my next year (laughs) of going from where I've been. I mean, every place is boring when you've lived in India for as long as I have. And I'm going to have to wrestle with that. I've been in the States enough to know that, okay, uh, I'm going to have to go back, be a cultural agent again. Um, I'm going to have more internal work to do. Um, but in any case, I know that I need perspective. So if I were going to do this job again, and I haven't ruled it out, I've, I love the job. I've loved it. I've loved the uh, experience that I've had at this school and in, in Bombay. Um, uh, I know that if I, I gotta, I gotta get, I gotta take myself to the other side and learn and think about things a little bit more.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Absolutely. And uh, what, what a wonderful way to uh, leave. And also, maybe remind everybody: we all need to take perspective and sometimes respite. Or doing something completely different is a good way to look back more than keep going. Or as you said, not taking another head of school position right now, but doing something completely different. Andrew, thank you so much for your wisdom and your reflections in this podcast. And uh, We wish you all the best, Kay, your wife, too, as you uh, transition back to the United States. How long has it been since you guys lived there? I'm thinking is when we were in Japan, we left.
2: 94. Wow.
1: That's a long time. It's a different (laughs) place.
2: It's going to be, I'm going to be uncomfortable next year. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah.
1: (laughs) that's right. Dan, any other
2: further? It's been such a pleasure uh, and an honor to... uh, engage in uh, conversation with the two of you keep up the great work thank you dan any f-
1: closing thoughts or anything no nothing i think andrew off?
0: finished it really well uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk andrew and uh, hope to talk again